My name is Peter Van Dorn. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, and I'm editor of the quarterly publication, Regulation. My job this afternoon is to make sure you don't fall asleep after that wonderful lunch, and I, we have very distinguished panelists in a riveting topic to make sure that you don't. This panel, the title of the panel is, Is Economic Dynamism in Decline? Basically, the panelists all address the question of what do we know about the role of entry and exit of firms and of job creation and productivity growth, and how is what we know, given the data we have, how has that changed over time? We have three distinguished panelists to help us tackle these questions. The first speaker is John Haltewanger. He's a professor of economics at the University of Maryland. And he's played, he spent his, his scholarly and, and government life in trying to develop data sets that help us understand um, these, help economists understand these questions. Amar Bide is professor of international business at the Fletcher School of International Affairs at Tufts University. He's the author of numerous books and papers on entrepreneurship. And finally, Alex Tabrock is a professor of economics at George Mason University. He studied economic dynamism, particularly in large firms, which is something that many people do not do. So without further time, we'll turn to John as a first presentation. So it's very nice to, to be here to talk about this topic. So, so the answer to the question from my perspective is, is, is dynamism in decline? The answer is yes. I think there's no doubt that it's in decline. And really, the bigger question is, is a why, and does it matter? Uh, so, so let me tell you why I think uh, that it is in decline, at least some indicators of it. So as in, in terms of my introduction, I have spent a lot of time with uh, working with the US statistical agencies, helping to develop measures that, that track the ongoing process of creative destruction in the United States. In particular, what we've done is look at the process of, of job creation and job destruction. And then uh, also, we've been looking at uh, sort of broader measures of churning in the labor market, worker reallocation, hires and separations. We now have data sets that allow us to track the entire U.S. private non-farm sector for long periods of time. And I think you, when, when you look at the statistics, a, a couple of things jump out at you. One is just the, the magnitudes. If you look at the lower right panel, that's the annual rates. Overall reallocation rates are in the, you know, uh, up in the 30 percent uh, kind of range on an establishment level basis. They're somewhat lower on the firm level basis because there's a fair amount of churning that goes on within, fir within firms. When you look at worker reallocation, you actually find it's, it, it's even larger. It's about twice the pace of, of job reallocation. And, th and that's pretty striking because indeed what that says is there's a, there's a lot of churning of workers, a lot of workers moving across firms over and above that needed to account for the expansion or contraction of businesses. Now, for today, our main point is not just to talk about these big magnitudes, although I think it's, it's, it's important to keep the magnitudes in mind. It's what's obvious here is you see a, a decline in all these series. For job reallocation rates, we've seen a decline, and I'll, I'll talk about that quite a bit, a decline over the last couple of de few decades. For worker reallocation, it's really most, very much a post-2000 phenomenon. That's because can I say we only really measure this well for the whole US private sector from 1990 on. Over the course of the 1990s, this churning of workers over and above job reallocation was actually rising, not falling. But it's fallen substantially in the post-2000 period. You, 
when you look at these, they're, they're, they're sort of a stepwise pattern. Every, every time we go into recession, these, these, uh, particularly on worker reallocation, it falls a lot, and then we just don't recover to where we were before. So you can see now, you know, rough, in, in basically in 2014, we have much lower rates of, of dynamism, or what Steve Davis and I have recently called fluidity, uh, in, in the U.S. labor market. Um, I also wanted to note that, that if you look carefully, and I'm going to look oh, carefully in just a second, at the job reallocation rates while it's been declining over the entire period of time, it's accelerated in the post-2000 period. And I'll give you some explanation as to why I think it's accelerated. Now, now why do we care about these things? It's not as though we think these measures are important for their own sake. We, we, we don't think the churning of firms and, and jobs is, is inherently important in its own sake. We think it's important because of things like that, that Eric Benvolson talked about earlier today. These are indicators telling us something about the extent to which we're reorganizing ourselves, we're reinventing ourselves. And, and we actually have lots of evidence now that the pace of both job reallocation and worker reallocation is closely tied to productivity growth and to real earnings growth. For, for job reallocation, what we've discovered, you know, again, you remember the magnitudes are so large. What we've discovered is who are the businesses that are expanding? They're up in the top part of the productivity distribution within industries. Who are the businesses that are contracting? They're at the bottom part of the productivity distribution. So, so indeed, in, in, uh, in terms of an accounting sense, a large fraction of aggregate productivity growth comes from this reallocation process. Now, one has to be a little bit careful about causality here. What, what I may just be describing is the process of innovation and growth and experimentation, very much what the first panels talked about this morning. And, and I'm describing the process at which it occurs. For uh, why do we think this is important for real earnings growth? Well, for one thing, we've actually found in the data that high productivity firms are also high wage firms. And so all that job reallocation is actually moving workers away from not only low productivity, but low wage firms to, to higher productivity firms within industries. We, we also know in terms of this extra churning, this extra churning is especially important for young workers. We know that workers, young workers build their careers through job hopping. And so uh, we, we found actually a, a large fraction of, of earnings growth over a life cycle is, is through job hopping, again, especially for young workers. So why are we concerned then when we look at the pace of these is, well, does this mean that we're, that we're getting less of those earnings and productivity gains um, from this, this ongoing creative destruction process? Do I know the answer to that question for sure? But no, can I say I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you some evidence that, that at least going to give us uh, some concern? Now, to, to, to be able to, to answer these questions, it's actually helpful to, again, again start to ask the question, why? And, and the first answer I'm going to give is not really a, is not an ultimate answer, but is approximate answer. So, so what do I mean by that? By approximate answer, one thing we also know that's happened along the same period of time is that we've seen a decline in the pace of entrepreneurship in the United States. We've seen a decline in the startup rate in the private sector, and we've also seen a decline in the share of activity accounted for by young firms. That's not surprising. They kind of go hand in hand. If you don't have any births, you're not going to have any children. All right. So, so we've seen a, a sharp decline uh, in, in both of these. Now, again, that doesn't, that, that doesn't really tell us necessarily why again, because then we, we really want to ask the question, why have we seen this decline in, in entrepreneurship? It, it's clearly related. Why do we know that? Because we know, and I'll, and I'll provide some evidence in just a second, we know that young firms are the most volatile firms in the economy. So, so just in a compositional sense, if you have fewer young firms, you're going to have less, a less volatile economy. 
Again, why might we be concerned? We actually heard a little bit about that this morning. To the extent that it's the young firms, it's the entrepreneurs that are playing a key role in experimentation, innovation, taking advantage of all these great uh, new ideas that Eric talked about. If there's less of that going on, then, then indeed, it may be that we've got all the, all the inventions out there that we need. We're just not, we're just not uh, implementing them in, in as a, a effective way as we used to. Now, so, so, to, so, to, so to dig deeper into the role of entrepreneurship, it's good to take a step back and just, just describe the nature of what happens to firms after they enter in the United States. So one thing we learned is when we look at the data that's very striking. So what happens to most uh, startups? They fail. Right? So a very large fraction of them fail. You can see this in the upper left-hand corner. So exit rates, and these are employment-weighted exit rates, exit rates are much higher for young firms, enough so that take any cohort of, uh, of entrants, five years after, you've lost about 50% of the jobs already from, from entrants. Now, interestingly, and can I say this is very much a US phenomenon. There's some recent work that suggests that other countries don't do so well on this, this second margin. Uh, is conditional on survival, who are, the rap who are the most rapidly growing firms, at least in terms of employment growth? And recently, we've been able to show this for uh, output growth as well. It's actually young firms. So conditional on survival, the fastest growing firms in the, in the US are young firms. It's worth digging a little deeper to, to, to sort of help us understand the nature of this role of entrepreneurship for, uh, for growth. So, so what you can do is you can look at the whole distribution of these surviving firms. And, and, and again, kind of what's sort of striking, I've already told you what's, what's the most likely outcome for a, for a startup, it's going to fail. Conditional on survival, what's the most likely outcome? It's not going to grow. The median young firm basically has zero growth. Actually, the median of all, of all age groups has about zero growth. So what's, what's driving? This is a case where there's a huge difference between the mean and the median. That's not always true. That's not true in nice normal distributions, right? So what's going on here is there's enormous positive skewness. There's a relatively small fraction of very fast-growing young firms that take off and contribute a lot to jobs. And, and again, when we connect this to the productivity data, we find they're way up in the productivity data as well. There's also some very nice work recently that says they're also very innovation-intensive, these high-growth young firms. So this also kind of adds to our concern, right? Because potentially the question is, are we seeing a decline in these, 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 these type of high-growth firms? Now, but I'm, I'm going to dig into that a little bit, but let me just sort of, I want to emphasize how important this group is. So if, if you just do a simple accounting decomposition of gross job creation in the United States, that is, all the jobs added in a given year, and it's a large number. I've already kind of given you those, those statistics on the first slide. We get about 20% of job creation in a year from startups alone. It's a big number. That's why, why they're important. We get another 50% from these relatively small fraction of high-growth firms. And by high-growth, I'm defining those 25% or, or above. And there's only a, a small fraction of firms that do this. So we're at 75% of job creation from, from the startups and high-growth firms alone. So again, that says, yes, yeah, a group we ought to pay attention to. So, so now let's go back. We want to think, now we want to go back to the decline in dynamism point. And, and, and there's two, two very different views or, or possibilities. And it turns out it doesn't have to be uh, such distinct views. One possibility is that the decline in entrepreneurship are these businesses that mostly fail and don't grow. 
and, and why might we think that? Well, well, again, in, in the, both in the theoretical and in the empirical literature, there, there's nice work that suggests that many, many business startups, they're not looking to be the next big thing. They're not looking to be the firms that take advantage of all of what, what Eric's talked about. They, they, it's more of an occupational choice. It's individuals who want to, to, to be their own boss. And so they have an idea, and they, and they serve important roles, both in terms of providing occupational activity for themselves and perhaps a small number of workers, but, 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 but growth is not, is not on their horizon. So, so one view is, one possibility is, maybe what we've just seen is a decline in these be-your-own-boss kind of entrepreneurs. Of course, a greater concern is that, what, that we're, we're losing are, are these, high growth, the, these uh, potentially high-growth entrepreneurs. Now, this is, a, this is a really hard question, right? Because it, in, terms of the, in terms of the models we write down in, in terms of our thinking, it's really hard to know when you enter whether you're going to be the next big thing, right? So that, so that it, it's very hard to predict winners. But, but we have made some progress. Certainly, uh, we're not any, good, any better at picking winners, so don't get me wrong about that. But we have made some progress in recognizing that there are some sectors which are more likely dominated. The startups are more likely to be these be-your-own-boss kind of sectors, and other sectors where the role of high-growth entrepreneurs plays a really important role. And so uh, we've been looking at this intensively. I'm going to talk about this at a pretty high level. I'm going to talk about two sectors here. I'm going to talk about retail trade versus uh, high tech. So let me first talk about retail trade. So in retail trade, can, let's, let's focus on, on that line here. It's a sector which has traditionally had very high pace of job reallocation and very high pace of entry, very high pace of exit. I'm going to show you a little bit more of that in just a second. And that's a sector which arguably, and I don't want to over push this point, arguably is, is, it has a higher fraction of this be your own boss kind of startups, mom and pop businesses. And, and what do we know about retail trade? is that retail trade has gone through an enormous restructuring over the last several decades now, away from these mom and pop businesses, towards large national chains. It's been an enormous change in the fraction of activity accounted for within these. And, and so in that sector, this decline in dynamism and decline in entrepreneurship actually is associated with the creative destruction process. It's actually associated with moving resources away from mom and pops, which are highly volatile, towards large national chains. And the data shows, whether you're a fan of the mom and pops or not, they have much lower productivity than the large national chains. So just looking at numbers recently on this, we're talking about like a 30 log point gap between, within the same sector between the large national chains and the, and the mom and pop stores. So that shift, that shift sort of, you could say almost ironically, this decline in dynamism is part of a creative destruction moving resources away from less productive to more productive businesses. So I would say that it, if, if the whole economy looked like retail trade, we probably wouldn't be very worried about this decline in dynamism. Some of you might be concerned that you're shopping at Walmart rather than the, than the local uh, corner store for, for other kinds of quality reasons. But in terms of job growth and productivity growth, uh, it's not so clear that that's a problem. A, a different way of putting this, of course, is Essentially, what I'm saying is in the retail trade sector, we could make a case that there's been a change in the business model that's favored large national chains. And actually, it's very much tied to what we heard about this morning, 
Who are the guys that could really take advantage of IT and globalization? It's the large national chains. What is retail trade all about? Acquisition and distribution. And IT and globalization facilitate that for all the reasons that we, we, just, we, we talked about this morning. So, so now let me contrast that with a, with a very different sector. We heard this morning as well the importance of the high-tech sector. And I'm using, can I say, a, you know, remember we, we had some discussion this morning about slightly different definitions. Well, so what do I mean by high-tech? I, I mean both the manufacturing component of high-tech, but I also mean all the parts of what we call the information sector now, software publishing, internet service portals, all those guys I've got in high-tech as well. So interestingly, this is a sector, instead of a decline in dynamism over the 80s and 90s, actually there was an increase in dynamism, but it started to fall uh, right around 2000, right around the time, can I say, that John Furneaux tells us that productivity is declining in, in, in high tech. If we dig a little further, we also see that entrepreneurship patterns are very different in retail trade versus high tech. In retail trade, again, we've had this long-running decline in mom and pops. So we actually had a decline in entry rates and a decline in exit rates because of this. But in high tech, a different story, where you could clearly see the influence of the dot-com bubble. But I think even, even take the bubble away, I think one's struck by the share of young firm activity in 2005 is much lower than in 1995. So that, that, that's on different sides of the dot-com bubble. So this is a sector, I think there's evidence, and I'm going to show it to you in just a second, where the high-tech sector is, is a place where these high-growth entrepreneurs and, have played a big role. And how do I see that? Well, remember, when I showed you those distributions, what was really striking is this positive skewness for young firms. And, and a simple way of putting that is, in, in, in sectors where there's high growth entrepreneurs, whether they're young or old, but by the way, they, they are almost always young, uh, what we'll see is a big gap between the 90th percentile and the 50th percentile relative to the 50-10. So you'll see, another way of putting it is, we'll, we'll see skewness in the distribution, positive skewness. So when you look at high tech, what's striking is, look at the enormous dis Skewness, this is the, the, the 90 versus 50 is the gap, these are big numbers, the gap between, this is an employment weighted basis as well, the gap between the 90th percentile firm and the 50th percentile firm, and that's much larger in high tech than the 5010. And we've dug into this, this is being driven by young uh, high tech entrepreneurial businesses, because again, that's where the skewness is concentrated. So you can also see in this period of time where there's this, there's this uh, troubling decline in overall economic growth, what, and, and this is true both in terms of job growth as well as productivity growth. Remember, the, the 2004-06 period was not a very robust period for growth period uh, in, in terms of either, either productivity growth or job growth. So I know people sort of say, oh, that was an okay period. Actually, it looked terrible relative to the, to the 1990s. And obviously, the, the post-Great uh, Recession recovery has even been more anemic. And so, so what we are struck by is there's been this enormous collapse in skewness in key innovative sectors uh, like the high-tech sector. And, and does that tell us that we should be concerned? No, but it's, at least it's in a sector where we think this creative destruction process is likely to be very important, and we've seen a huge decline exactly in the time, can I say, that matches the time period that people like John Furneaux tell us that productivity within these sectors has declined as well. So also let me contrast retail trade. Again, retail trade's been declining all along, but retail trade was not a sector where we saw this kind of big, this skewness. Remember, this skewness is driven by 
these high-growth young entrepreneurs. Remember what's been happening in retail trade. Where, where's the growth been coming in retail trade? It's not been coming from mom and pops taking off. It's been coming from the large national chains getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Right, so very different kind of uh, form of, of expansion and innovation. So let me just also note, you might sort of say, well, look, the high-tech sector is not that big. But, but strikingly, this decline in dynamism that I'm talking about, we've seen a decline in this overall skewness in the overall private sector. And it's not simply driven by the high-tech sector, but, it's, but, it, but in all the sectors where there is skewness, we've seen much lower. And again, it's, can I say it's striking that we've essentially had a collapse in this skewness. So we had, used to have a lot of skewness. Now we have essentially none. And so what that's saying is we're just not getting the kick from these high-growth entrepreneurs that we used to. I haven't told you why. I, I don't know why exactly. I'm happy to talk. I have some ideas. I'll, I'll, I'll try to close on those. But, but nevertheless, uh, th that looks to be a source of concern. So let me, let me talk about two, two different other dimensions very briefly in my remaining time, sort of slightly different angles on the, on the same topic. So as I, as, I, as I opened up, I sort of said, well, what, what we think is going on in all these reallocation dynamics, it's moving resources away from low productivity businesses to high productivity businesses. So one question is, you could go look in, in, inside sectors and just say, well, it's possible that something's happened, so there's, not, there's less need for all this reallocation. Something, may, something maybe has happened, so there's less dispersion and productivity across businesses. When there's a lot of dispersion across businesses, when the, when the gap between the 90th percentile business and the 10th percentile business is really large, it's exactly then, and Eric talked about this before, where, where we ought to be moving resources away from the less productive to the more productive. So for, for, for productivity, we're in the, at, the, at the micro level, unlike these, these macro guys over here. We're in best shape to do this in, in the manufacturing sector. So here I'm showing you dispersion in TFP for the entire manufacturing sector. This is all within. Uh, narrow industries. This is when, within narrow six-digit NAICS industries. And then I'm also showing you the, the high-tech component of manufacturing. And I, and I think, again, what's striking is dispersion's not going down. It's, if anything, it's going up. So what that says is we have even more need within the manufacturing sector. And I didn't show you, by the way, manufacturing's had a decline in dynamism. But I've also, I have shown you that we've seen the, 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 the high-tech sector have a decline in dynamism post-2000. So the decline in dynamism is not because the shocks hitting firms seem to be uh, any different. But instead, it's the, it's the decline in the responsiveness to those shocks. So there's, you could say there's as many $500 bills lying on the sidewalk as ever. It's just we're not picking them up as fast. And, and I think that that's a source of concern. And you can see this. By the way, it's especially the young firms that aren't picking it up as fast. You can see this is a, the marginal response to to productivity in terms of firm level growth rates. And you could see it actually rose over the 1990s in high tech and then fell dramatically in the post-2000 period. If nothing else, in an accounting sense, this helps uh, explain, and I'll use the word explain in an accounting sense, uh, John's, John's results as well. Because indeed, within this sector, what we're seeing is we're just not moving resources to the most productive businesses nearly as rapidly, especially for the, for the young businesses. L Last, last two points. So all of my remarks so far uh, ha have been about the creative destruction process and its, and, and its potential connection to innovation and productivity growth. It's mostly been about job growth, but I've been talking about what we know about the connection between these and, and productivity growth. 
Well, we actually think this decline in dynamism has, has implications for economic growth beyond just looking at, at productivity. So, and, and I talked about this a little bit at the beginning when I talked about the role of, uh, of all this churning for, 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 for workers to build careers. So again, remember, we've, we've seen this decline in job reallocation. We've seen a decline in churning and a decline in overall worker reallocation. And, and, and if you look at it, and I don't, I'm not going to show you all those charts here, but it's, gonna be, it's related to this, where have we seen the declines the largest for what kind of workers? It's especially for young workers. Those are the workers, they're not, they're not job hopping in, this, in the way that they used to. In spite of what it seems your kids are doing and my kids are doing, we're, we just don't have the same job hopping rates that we used to. So it's also the case, that's exactly the areas where we've seen the biggest declines in employment rates in the United States. And it, so, it's, so where are we seeing huge declines in employment rates in the United States over the post-2000 period? It's young, less educated, and especially males. Those are groups that have been especially hard hit, you could say, by this decline in fluidity. I don't have time to go through all the, the mechanisms, but Steve Davis and I have a recent paper which, which go through what we regard as the mechanisms. A simple way of putting it is, the, a, a less fluid economy is, is a less desirable economy to build a career. And so marginal workers are less likely to participate. So if you look at these numbers again on the magnitudes, huge declines in uh, employment rates, particularly for young, less educated males. And with some elaborate econometrics, we actually think we've explained most of it by this decline in fluidity. So now I will really bring this to a close. So, so what I haven't done, uh, I told you lots of facts. I'm, I'm better at that than, than, than the why. I'm much better on the what. But, but do, we, do we have a sense as to why we've seen this, this decline? And, and uh, the answer, we're working on it. Okay, But let me tell you a, 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 two pieces of evidence. I mean, you, you can see in the background of all this is this concern, you know, is the U.S. becoming more sclerotic, more like oftentimes people point to Europe in terms of its rigidities in product markets and in labor markets. So we have at least two pieces of evidence that suggest this is a non-trivial issue. So one of them is, it's based upon work that David Otter did, and we build upon that. David Otter has done some very nice work documenting the erosion of the employment at will doctrine in the United States. So turns out through the courts, there have been uh, substantial changes over the last few decades in terms of how courts have handled various kinds of cases in terms of uh, uh, wrongful dismissal. And, and the way the courts work, I'm certainly not a lawyer, is some states start adopting these kinds of precedents, and then other states follow suit. So we use that evidence. We use the fact that some states moved, changed their, uh, their precedents in the courts relative to others, and we found we could actually account for a for a, a substantial, not all of it, a substantial fraction of the decline in uh, these fluidity measures uh, with, with the erosion at will, erosion at, of employment at will, excuse me. The second thing that we're struck by uh, is something we haven't investigated yet, but, we, but, but it's active on our, our research agenda. And it's based upon some very nice work that uh, Alan Kruger and Morris Kleiner have recently done. It's a very nice paper in the Journal of Labor Economics recently that shows that the fraction of workers in the United States that has some sort of occupational licensing requirement has skyrocketed. Over the last few decades, it's gone from about 5% to close to 40%. So these are the kind, these are, you might regard these as sort of death by a thousand cuts. That is it the case that the United States has become 
less flexible. Certainly, if that is the case, that could account for this decline in dynamism. If that's the reasons, then we really should be concerned. I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Brink, thank you for inviting me. I hope your hospitality extends to uh, accommodating me in the witness protection pro program after I'm done. Uh, this, I should have called this talk how to uh, lose friends and offend people. Uh, I study businesses, ventures, entrepreneurs at the coalface. I, I study flesh and blood things. Uh, I do not study, study statistics. And I understand that this perspective can cause me to sort of not get the full picture. On the other side, the people who do, who do study statistics, their statistics are only as good as the underlying models or the underlying process by, through which these statistics were developed. So the ancient Greeks used to have this very reductive for humor imbalance model of disease, and they thought that fever was a single disease. Today, if anybody showed up with aggregate statistics on, on the imbalances between the four humors or tried to track the incidence of people running a temperature, we would laugh at them. So there has to be some congruence between what one studies from the anatomy and physiology of businesses and, and entrepreneurship and what, 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 what one represents uh, as being relevant overall statistics. So to answer the general question is, is economic dynamism in, in decline from my coalface view? Largely, no. Uh, the alarming assessments rely primarily on low productivity growth. Uh, Robert Gordon this morning at precisely 11 a.m. said total factor productivity growth is what measures innovation. It is the be-all and the end-all. And I would argue that productivity estimates are in, in, incorrigibly implausible proxies for the process that one might reasonably think of as innovation. They are, in fact, bunk. Uh, I, am, I am much more persuaded by the kinds of data that, that John presented to us. I, I think the, the data that suggests that there are fewer improvised high-growth uh, startups, that's the kind of stuff that warrants real concern. So my remarks today is uh, I'm going to start off by sketching some salient features of what I see to be uh, uh, the characteristic of 20th uh, and 21st century innovation. I will argue that, that modern innovation, or recent innovation, is much more widely inclusive than it used to be. And it, it, it matches destructive crea creative destruction with non-destructive uh, uh, creation as well, and th there's, there's an important complementarity between these two things. If I have the time, I may talk of, about a little bit about the en enablers of what makes innovation inclusive in recent times. I will use that as a stepping stone to, to argue that TFP is an in incorrigibly, I, I, I don't know why I wrote this, I can hardly speak it, <laughs> incorrigibly plausible proxy, that it is super, it's a superficially seductive construct and that it inevitably excludes features that makes the economy dynamic. And then I, would get, if, if, uh, I will talk about why declining new f business formation and growth warrants real concern. Uh, let's start with what I mean by widely inclusive. Innovation in the 19th century was much more exclusive. 
The, it, it, it relied on solo inventors or a few entrepreneurs, Thomas Edison, the Duria brothers. They produced crude, expensive products, sort of the, 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 uh, and they were bought by a few well-to-do patrons. I mean, Nate Rosenberg has this lovely description of the first cars being noisy, unreliable, and being bought by rich hobbyists who drove around scaring horses. Uh, in the 20th century, in, 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 innovation became much more inclusive. Today's innovation in, in, uh, draws on the talents of a very large number of individuals. There is no Graham Bell for the internet. The, Graham, the, the internet has been created by an army of people with a, a, large, a large number of talents. The same is true of the, of the personal computer revolution. These people produce useful, affordable products from the get-go. And this, this development of, of new products and services is matched by what I have called widespread venturesome consumption. And let, let me spend a, f a few minutes talking about what I mean by widespread venturesome consumption. Uh, there is the assumption in economics uh, that, uh, that consumers are simply passive, undeserving beneficiaries. And this is a, a quote from Paul Roma. He says, innovators have brought the cost of a transistor down to less than a millionth of its former level, yet most of the benefits from these discoveries have been reaped not by the innovating firms, but by the users of transistors. In 1985, I paid $1,000 per million for memory in my computer. In 2005, I paid less than $10 per million and yet I did nothing to deserve or pay for this windfall. Everything is right except that last crucial clause. And why do I say that? First of all, consumers play an important role uh, in, in the co-development of products through experimentation and dialogue. But if you may say, oh, that, that's just sort of the leading edge users. But all of us do as well. We are taking risks each time we buy a new product. I have probably since 1982 spent about $200,000 on hard computer hardware and software. I had no idea before I bought this stuff whether I was going to get value commensurate with the prices I was going to pay for it. If you add up all the purchases of all the people in this room and all the, all, all, all the purchases of consumers, I bet we have collectively invested more in computer hardware and software than the likes of Intel, Microsoft, and, and, and Google. We are also engaged in resourceful problem solving. I may be kind of dumb, but my computers do not work out of the box for me. I have to, I have to spend an awful lot of time tweaking them and tailoring them to, to, to make this work. And, and again, if you add up all the man hours, uh, woman hours that people have spent in getting their computers to work, this probably also swamps the, the, the time and, and energy of engineers at Intel, Google, and Microsoft. So no, we have not been undeserving beneficiaries of, of a windfall. We, the consumers, have been active, important con contributors to, 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 to this process. And it is the venturesomeness of consumers that stimulates innovations and is essential to realizing their economic value. If there weren't venturesome consumers, all this stuff would be useless and would not be produced in the first place. Uh, the second important feature of modern innovation, which people uh, do not think much about, is the idea of non-destructive creation. I mean, Schumpeter gave, this, gave us this stirring phrase of creative destruction. But if all we had was creative destruction, then we would not have an ongoing process of innovation. Non-destructive creation is an essential feature of technological process, although it's sort of in, in our imaginations, it's overshadowed by creative destructions. Yes, some products displace old products. So, the, the, you know, the, famously, the sailing boat was displaced by the steamship. Cars, displa uh, cars displaced uh, horses, but the airplane did not displace cars. 
a great number of mod modern medicines do not displace existing therapies. They do things that were not previously done. And th 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 this efficiency improvements alone, creative destruction, could not alone sustain growth because at some point you drive down the prices and costs of stuff to the, to, to the level where everybody could buy all the existing goods and services would be completely sated. And then after that, any further, further improvements would have to come at the, at, at the cost of massive unemployment. It is this new want innovation that absorbs the resources released by creative destruction and increases efficiency growth. So let's, let me say a few words about some of the enablers of this modern process of innovation. We've had much greater diversity of organizations in the 19th century, innovations were undertaken by, by individuals or, or small firms. In the 20th century, we've seen in, in, in the first 20 or 30 years, a huge increase in the large professionally managed organization. This process of specialization has continued. In the 1980s, we've seen the growth of venture capital-backed firms. And again, this has not been a destructive, a destructive process. We've seen an increase in the diversity, the organizational diversity of the, of the ecosystem. We've had considerable changes in beliefs and attitudes. We've had self-fulfilling expectations of technological change, such as Moore's law. So Moore's law works because people believe it works. We've had people who derive gratification from thrift. This is uh, 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 we, we've we've had the devaluation. Uh, sorry, we've had gratification from uh, from early adoption. We've had the devaluation of thrift, and we've had eroding expectations and aspirations for long-term employment. It's not clear that people always had long-term employment, but people at least aspire to it. And again, I may be talking my own book, since I'm a, a basically a business school professor, but we've had a whole range of management techniques which have developed in the 20th century that sustained the process of, 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 of innovation. We've had the expansion of higher education, again, in the 20th century. And let me emphasize that most of these enablers have, had, have accelerated in the last 20 or 30 years. It's in the last 20 or 30 years that people have given up on hopes for lifetime employment. It is in the last 20 or 30 years that we've developed techniques such as quality circles, Six Sigma, et cetera, all of which try to bring in the masses in, 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 to participate in, in, in the innovation process. It's in the last 10 years that we've had a growth in design thinking. Um, so then, uh, you know, you, and I, I could spend the rest of the afternoon reciting all the wonderful things that have been produced by this process of, of, of inclusive innovation. But you may say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's all sort of anecdote, it's journalism. We have this really sort of good stuff called total factor productivity. And let me tell you why I think this is a superficially seductive contract, but, construct, but practically useless. Uh, Superficially, it makes a great deal of sense. You have labor, you have capital, and it's transformed into, into outputs. And if you measure the efficiency with, in, with which this transformation takes place, isn't that a wonderful summary statistic of innovation and dynamism in the economy? Yes, conceptually. But practically, what's the problem? It's incorrigibly uninformative for the following reasons. First off, measures of output and input ignore the surplus in investment of ventures and consumers. Most, most assessments... Uh, say that 90% of the value of innovations goes to consumers. 0% of, of that value is captured in, in, in productivity measures. Uh, I, have, I, I would make the argument that 
at least as much, if not many, many more times the investment that the developers of innovation make is made by the consumers of innovation. Zero percent of that is captured on the investment side. We have, as, as I mentioned, a great deal of non-creative destruction. The basket of goods that we consume changes from day to day, from year to year. These baskets of goods are fundamentally incommensurate over time. So it is kind of, it is unreal to talk about real GDP when there is no concept. I mean, you, you can fiddle around at the edges and talk about hedonic price adjustments, but hedonic price adjustments are picking up dust mites. The real critters are in front of you. These are called new products serving new wants, which did not previously exist. And finally, and possibly most importantly, these models control for changes in inputs. These, these models basically ignore the heterogeneity of multiplayer innovation. Uh, let me give you examples of two monumental disjunctions. One is the productivity of IT use. I, I, I had this. I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know what Dale Jorgensen was going to say this morning, but I had this quote written down in my. In 2000, he wrote, the evidence was clear that computer-using industries like finance, insurance, real estate, and services had continued to lag in productivity growth. Reconciliation of massive high-tech investment and relatively low productivity growth in service industries remains an important task for proponents of the new economy position. Okay? What are the, what, what, these are the, what are the assumptions that go underneath this? First, no counting of the user surplus or of the users of IT-using industries. What about all the surplus of people using ATMs, not included in, 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 in the counting of, uh, of the productivity due to ITUs? Look even deeper. There's an identical product function for converting inputs into outputs. What kind of assumption is that? I mean, I wander around looking at a large number of, uh, of companies, and they all have idiosyncratic production functions. And they are idiosyncratic because we live in a dynamic, decentralized economy. It is absurd to assume that these, are, that these, that, that these production functions are identical. It is assumed that we are living in perfectly competitive and product factor markets. Sorry, the corner florist may be uh, uh, in a perfectly competitive market, not Walmart. Since at least the 1960s, 50% of the economy has had an oligopolistic structure. How can you assume that we live in perfectly competitive markets? Furthermore, if you assume that, where does the capital come to invest in these IT investments? If we lived in a perfectly competitive market, nobody would have the, 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 the capital to make these huge investments that, ha that were made and continue to be made by the industry. So in some sense, this assumption precludes the very phenomenon that the procedures uh, 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 purports to assess. And here's the reality check. We've had a vast transformation of IT using industries in the, in, in, in the 1900s and the 2000s. Walmart, the banking industry, transportation, play, industry after industry. Surely the old industry structure did not die spontaneously of Dutch elm disease. Surely in a competitive industry, the replacement of the, of the old structure by the new structure was accompanied by something that one ought to reasonably call an improvement in productivity, one ought to reasonably call innovation. And surely the, 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 the business people, the people who spent half a trillion dollars, surely they were not stupid. Surely they were doing it because they thought there was value, or at least if they did not make the investments, the value would not, would, 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 would not be realized. Disjunction two. 
I think the, 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 this is probably the most scandalous disjunction. The alleged soaring total factor productivity in, great, in the Great Depression, yes, as measured, it soared. But is that uh, an indicator of anything desirable or, or new? So yes, we, we have these, these wonderful creative long dis, dis, d delay explanations. Uh, you know, if somebody is wasting away and his clothes or her clothes starts fall, start falling off and the scale suggests that that person's weight is increasing, we would suspect the scale, not try to imagine that the person is becoming denser and therefore heavier. Uh, so, so is there a much more commonsensical explanation for the soaring productivity? Yes. Reason one, massive undercounting of the advances of the, of the roaring 20s. Uh, the consumer surplus generated by the creation of mass markets in industry after industry, radios, vacuum cleaners, and most of all automobiles, simply was not what gets no credit in total factor productivity measurements. And this, this is something which shocked me when I, when, when I learned about it. The drastic cost reductions in due to mass production, which took place after Henry Ford, did not show up. In the on, on the production side because the stuff simply was not included in, in the price index. So automobiles were, did not enter the price index until the 1930s. And so this fantastic revolution, this fantastic increase in efficiency of automobiles not counted in the 1920s. So, so it, gets, it, it gets thrown in, in into the 1930s and God knows what the, 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 the reaction is there. So, let me say this. It is not that there is a better way of aggregating productivity improvements. It is not that people have been deliberately, I am I, I'm claiming that there is a fundamental disconnect between measures of TFP, which assume a monolithic mechanistic process that's fundamentally incompatible with the widespread exercise of individual, let me emphasize the word, individual imagination and, and, and agency. And there is simply no way around it. Uh, if, if these things happen to line up with what happens in the real world, that is pure accident. Uh, let, let me then come to, to come to the last point since I, I have five minutes and deal with something which I actually agree with. So why one really ought to be concerned about new business formation and, and growth. Uh, there is, there's, in, my, in my previous work, I've kind of roughly divided from my case-by-case -case observation new businesses into three categories. The great mass of the great unwashed, the florist, the, the service industry, the, the, the corner retail store, basically has a, is, is of no consequence to, uh, to growth and innovation. At the top, we have a few hundred firms which are backed by venture capital, but these are the creme de la creme. In the middle are these 10 or 15% businesses, which I call, which I've called pr promising businesses. Uh, and yes, we see a huge boom in venture, in venture capital, but I'm persuaded by the sorts of data that you've, pre that, 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 that you've presented that we may be in trouble in that, in that second tier. And why does this matter? It matters to some degree because these the, 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 the sort of the, 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 the under the radar promising firms are uh, 
are, are undertaking really cutting edge innovations. But I think it matters much, much more. Again, I, 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 I say this from my case to case ob uh, observations because these small firms are vital in the process of disseminating new technologies. Without so, in the in, on the on the Inc. 500 list, for for instance, year after year, 35 percent of 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 the businesses are in the computer industry. Very few of them, from my study, are actually developing new 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 computers. What they are doing, though, and what what is vital to do, is that they are disseminating these technologies, and without this dissemination, no, val no, no value could be realized. So they're undertaking what I would call small night in high uncertainty uh, initiatives. Secondly, again, this comes about from my, 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 uh, my case by case research. These are the people who, who hire the, the difficult to hire. Uh, large companies generally will not hire people without at least a high school education or, 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 or without a college degree. They certainly will not hire convicted felons. Uh, venture capital firms will not do that either. The small self-financed startup is not in the process of hiring anybody. So this is a vital part of the, uh, of the inclusive process. Uh, and we have, we have, for whatever reasons, we have lost it. I, I can speculate why this may, may have happened. Uh, I don't think, but I, I don't think in fact, anybody really knows. Here's, here is my speculation, since I have two minutes. It may be because of regulation. It, 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 it may be because of these licensing agreements. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not about to dismiss this, but I, 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 I can simply say I'm not so sure, because regulation can as much favor large businesses as it, as it can suppress small businesses, because large businesses have the, the, the advantage of. But on the other side, a lot of these small businesses are not law-abiding. Sad truth of, I mean, I, I study them. I mean, they, they cheat on their taxes, they hire undocumented aliens, they, they, they do all kinds of stuff. So in fact, this, they may actually be helped by, 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 by increasing re regulation. Again, one sees what one sees, since in the other half of my life I dump on the, uh, on the finance industry, I'd argue uh, I, uh, that the change in the structure of modern finance, which has gone from a case-by-case, judgment-based process of lending to a process of mechanistic lending has unduly favored very large companies on the one side or consumer borrowing on the other, that we have destroyed our capacity to extend credit to the, uh, to, to, to the small business. The small business cannot tap capital markets. The small business can get started with no external capital, but it cannot grow without, without bank borrowing. And I think this may be at least one of the crucially important uh, the, the reasons why this, the, the, the second tier has been losing ground. But I think this absolutely desperately needs looking into. Thank you. Okay, is entrepreneurship uh, in decline? Um, let me first of all say that uh, it's a, a great pleasure for me to be on this panel with John and uh, Amar. Uh, John's work in particular has really changed how economists understand uh, the labor market, innovation, and uh, business dynamics. 
Um, John showed a number of slides suggesting that business dynamism has decreased. Uh, job creation and job destruction rates are down. Uh, in addition, entry uh, rates, startup rates, uh, are also uh, down over a long time span, not just over the last 10 years, though perhaps they've increased over the last 10 years. Another way of uh, putting this is to ask, is the US becoming more like Europe? And traditionally, the United States has been a more dynamic economy than Europe. You often hear people say this, say things like this, but we can actually put some numbers on it. Uh, it's not just an anecdote. Successful firms grow more quickly, and unsuccessful firms die more quickly in the United States than in Europe. So here's a little bit of data on this. This is the US-Europe gap uh, with firms. On the uh, right here, we have fast-growing firms. And you can see the United States has more fast-growing firms uh, than in Europe. On the left, you see uh, fast-shrinking firms. The United States has more fast-shrinking firms than in Europe. Europe dominates in the middle, the static, the static firms. So are we becoming more like Europe? And if so, why? One possible hypothesis or plausible hypothesis is, is it, is it regulation? And we certainly know that a significant fraction of productivity growth comes from moving resources from low productivity firms to high productivity firms. So to the extent that regulation impedes this reallocation process, it can reduce productivity growth. And there's lots of anecdotes uh, about this kind of uh, process. For example, had the government not bailed out GM, would other firms have grown more quickly? It's interesting that at the same time as the federal government uh, uh, bailed out GM, uh, state and local governments make it hard for a competitor like Tesla to even sell their cars, right? to even be able to sell them uh, uh, off a lot. So um, it's a plausible hypothesis. We might want to specify it a little bit more and ask this question. Do industries which are more highly regulated, do they show less dynamism? Uh, my colleague, uh, Nathan uh, Goldschlag, is at the US Census, and I have been looking at this question. We have some early uh, results. What we do is we combine uh, regulation data with data in, on industry dynamics. And I want to give a shout out here to my colleagues at Mercatus, Patrick McLaughlin and Omar Al-Ubadli, who have developed a uh, regulation index based upon the Code of Federal Regulations. Uh, using some machine intelligence techniques, and we're going to be using some of that. Uh, here's just kind of a picture. Uh, along the horizontal axis, we have a measure of regulatory stringency. Along the vertical axis, I'm showing the job creation rates. And actually, there's little or no relationship, even it's a little bit positive. So uh, just looking at this kind of uh, relationship, which is a very basic statistical result, the answer appears to be no. You have air transport on the right, very highly regulated industry. Uh, construction, also highly regulated. Job creation rates, not so bad in those highly regulated industries. What about startup rates? Again, perhaps surprisingly, 
But the answer appears to be no. Higher regulatory stringency, uh, higher startup rates, or perhaps about the same startup rates. The relationship is very small. Now, one might be worried here about reverse causality. Maybe it's the case that industries which have uh, a high startup rate or which have a high uh, job reallocation rate, maybe they're the ones which attract regulation. They're in the news, they get more regulated. Uh, nevertheless, when you look within an industry over time, we actually find very similar results. So at least tentatively, my answer is regulation, this kind of regulation in any case, uh, does not appear to be the cause of reduced dynamism. Well, if that's the case, what is the cause? And I want to give here two stories a pessimistic story and a more optimistic story. So let's begin with the pessimism. The implicit sort of causal story in the business dynamics literature has that startups, dynamism and so forth, that's one cause of productivity growth, the one we focus on. And then there's this other cause which is not so much focused on, that's the potential productivity of stuff that Eric talked about in the uh, earlier uh, session, science, uh, new ideas, artificial intelligence, robots, what's going on in the universities, at the MIT labs, and so forth. And this is a sort of a second cause, and these things are treated somewhat in independently. The potential productivity is sort of exogenous, the solo residual. What, however, if the causality looks like this? So suppose the causality is that these potential productivity, these science and ideas, new ideas, creates productivity growth directly, but also indirectly through startups. So the model here is that what an entrepreneur does is they look around at the scientific frontier and they ask, can I find a profitable implementation? Is there a new idea I can profitably implement? So in this view, which is sort of a Tyler Cowen, great stagnation, Peter Thiel, airplanes haven't got any faster kind of view, maybe Robert Gordon, maybe a little bit. Okay? In this view, the fundamental cause of reduced dynamism is actually that we don't have enough new ideas. Had we had more new ideas, well, the entrepreneurs would have picked them up. They would have created, uh, they would have created a new firm. So in this view, it's a pessimistic view because we actually we don't we don't know how really how much how to create some of these new ideas. It's kind of a hard problem. Like make the schools more creative. I'd like to. I want to make my kids more creative. I don't quite know how to do that. You know, I try my best. Uh, it's a it's a tough problem. Maybe we should be thinking. But if this view is correct, we should be thinking not so much about uh, business dynamics, but about how to generate new new ideas. Okay. That's the pessimistic, pessimistic view. To talk about the optimistic view, I want to ask some questions. First of all, is the decline in startups a bad thing? Now, when you here's an important fact, thinking about differences across countries. The most developed economies have the fewest entrepreneurs and the largest firms. 
So if you go to a less developed economy, I, I love to go to Morocco and uh, China, Peru. I love to go to the market, the bazaar. It's fabulous, right? It's an incredible amount of entrepreneurship. It's uh, 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 back and forth and haggling and dealing in the marketplace. And in these less developed economies, there are many more entrepreneurs. They have to be entrepreneurs. They are running their own firms. The problem with less developed economies is not that they don't have entrepreneurship. The problem is, is that the entrepreneurs can't get big. They can't grow large for whatever reason. They can't get large enough to start hiring a lot of workers. In the United States and other developed economies, we are fortunate enough to have the option. We don't have to be entrepreneurs. Many of us are not suited to it. We have the option of working for a large firm. Um, this is true not just cross-sectionally, not just from looking at develop, less developed and more developed economies. It's true over time. So as the United States has developed, we've seen fewer entrepreneurs and more workers working for large firms. That's the sign of development, working for large firms. So uh, in the United States, just in the past 20 years or so, it used to be the case that a little bit less than half, still a large number, a little bit less than half of all workers worked in a large firm employing more than 500 people. Today, it's over half, just over half. So many of the things in the business dynamics decline, many of those variables are actually associated with higher GDP per capita, both across country and over time. Um, the, the knock on big firms, okay? you know, big firms, they pay higher wages, they're better managed, the multinationals are the best managed of all firms. Okay? The knock on them has always been that, well, maybe they're not innovative. It's not really true. Some of them but on average, they're more innovative. Big firms are more innovative than smaller firms. Uh, you may know the most innovative US company. You may be familiar with the company I'm talking about. But then again, you might want to think a little bit different. Because I'm talking about Walmart. Okay. This has been uh, the most innovative US company, I think, in the last several decades. And it has been incredibly innovative in really one of the most important sectors, the retail sector. In any economy, the retail sector is typically one of the largest sectors in the economy. So if you can improve efficiency in that sector, that is a tremendous boost to productivity. In fact, uh, a number of people in the earlier sessions talked about the productivity boom in the 1990s. A significant fraction of that can be traced directly back to Walmart and the innovations that it introduced into the retail sector. So there's a lot to be said for big firms. Here's another question. What is entrepreneurship? And I want to get a little bit philosophical here uh, and seemingly go off on a tangent. Is this a new building? This is the Issei Grand Shrine. It's Japan's most sacred shrine. It was first built in 686. And what makes it interesting is that every 20 years, this shrine has been completely deconstructed, taken down, and then rebuilt in exactly the same spot, using exactly the same materials. And 16,000 artifacts across the entire shrine complex have been put back in exactly the same place. 
Every 20 years, over 1,000 years, this has been going on. So is this a new building, if you go see it? Well, no, it's not a new building. It was just built you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Or yes, it's, it, it's not a new building. It's been around for over 1,000 years. Okay, so now you're wondering, what, what the hell is Tabarrok talking about? <laughs> All right. How old is Ford? Okay. So this is Alan Mullally. Uh, when he became the CEO of Ford, uh, Ford was losing money. It was losing billions. Uh, it had had its credit rating downgraded to junk. Its uh, products were considered of low quality. It had terrible union contracts. Uh, it was a disaster. And that was in 2006 in a growing economy. But Ford was the only one of the big three not to take a government bailout. And under Mullally's leadership, it's now profitable. And by every account, Ford has been completely reconstituted. The culture has been changed. The process has been changed. The products have been changed. Ford has been rebuilt. Now, in the, in the data, we're measuring entrepreneurship as taking a firm from zero employees to one employee. In the data, Mullally is not an entrepreneur. In my view, Mullally is an entrepreneur. And if that is correct, then we're not measuring entrepreneurship the right way. Because to take an old firm and to improve it, to rebuild it, is even more important than to start up a new firm or at least or should be considered important. After all, most workers are working in these large firms. So if you can take a large firm and reconstitute it, instead of taking a small firm and building it, that's an incredible. You're dealing with many more employees, much larger fraction of the US economy. That is a huge, huge deal. What about this firm? Is this firm old? Uh, this is Zara. It's the world's largest fashion retailer. It was founded by uh, Amancio Ortega, who's the third or fourth richest person in the world, depending upon the day that you measure. Um, and you know, it used to be the case that a fashion house, it might produce one new line of product per season. And what Zara does is at each one of their 6,000 outlets, they collect information on a weekly basis, not just on what it's selling, but the managers report. What are the customers interested in? What are the customers wearing? What are the hot new trends? All that information is collected in Spain. Okay? And Zara, on the basis of that, very quickly turns out new lines so that Zara has five or six new fashion lines every season. You go, into a new, you go into a Zara store every few weeks, and the uh, line has been turned over. You see a new set of products, a new store. So is this firm old? What's the point? Well, the point here is that Zara has been very bad for business dynamism. Because it used to be the case that a small fashion boutique had an advantage, because it had its pulse closer to the city, closer to the fashion trends. So if a big fashion house made a mistake, the small boutique could grow really quickly because it was closer to, to, the, to what was going on. It was on trend. Okay? But now, because of information technology, Zara has its finger closer to the pulse of fashion than any small boutique has, not just on an individual citywide level, but on a worldwide level. 
So this means that uh, uh, is bad for business dynamism, bad for that growth of small companies into big companies, very good for entrepreneurship, very good for innovation, very good for consumers. In fact, what Zara has done in some sense is that it, it has internalized creative destruction. It has taken creative destruction within the firm. And if you can move creative destruction from the industry to the firm, that is a very, very good thing. Because creative destruction is painful. It involves bankruptcy, it involves unemployment, it involves workers moving, it involves a destruction of uh, physical and human capital. It's very painful. It is justified, it is on balance a good thing if it leads to more dynamism. But if we can do that internal to a firm without that pain, that's a very good thing. And that is what Zara has been all about. Another question. Where is entrepreneurship? And the, the question here is, the more globalized the economy, the less national statistics on business dynamism may reflect reality. So the United States is actually one of the less globalized economies, but it's still very globalized. Take, for example, Apple. Apple had, uh, in 2013, some 750 suppliers. Most of them were located abroad. Now, the Apple ecosystem is uh, incredibly uh, red in tooth and claw. It is incredibly harsh. Apple is a harsh taskmaster. <clears throat> so every time you see a new Apple product or a new iPhone iteration or something like that, you know, Apple demands of its suppliers. Can you meet our innovation standards? Can you meet our time standards? Can you meet our price standards? And it is hard to do. And so what happens in that Apple ecosystem is that if you cannot meet these standards, you are gone. You are out. So Apple, it's kind of like the Issei Grand Shrine. Apple abides, but the ecosystem, which is producing the Apple products, is continually changing as the suppliers shift over. But all of that business dynamism, which is happening underneath the banner of Apple, is not measured in the national statistics on business dynamism. So I think we need to look more globally. And I can put this in a positive way. As late as 1990, just seven nations accounted for 92% of world research and development. Today, those seven nations account for 56% of world research and development. And they're all doing more. It's just that other countries are even doing more. By 2020, India will be producing four times as many college graduates as the United States. 2030, China will have 200 million college graduates, a number that exceeds the entire US workforce. All of this is very good for the United States. It's very good for business dynamism. So in the future, I think we're going to see more entrepreneurs like this. Not just in the sense that we will see Chinese and Indian entrepreneurs, but in the sense that our global stock of entrepreneurs, our stock of entrepreneurs is increasingly global rather than national. So entrepreneurs in other countries will be changing the production and consumption decisions in the United States. OK. Let me just wrap up conclusions. <clears throat> uh, regulation does not appear to be uh, the cause of declining dynamism. More developed economies have fewer entrepreneurs and more large firms, including the United States over time. 
So many measures of declining business dynamism, which on the surface appear negative, can in fact be associated with greater GDP per capita. New firm, it's an ambiguous concept. Entrepreneurship can remake old firms. And technology is allowing old firms to be more nimble than in the past, to act more like new firms. Entrepreneurship is increasingly global. So my conclusion is that we should be presumptively cautious about making normative conclusions from declining business dynamism. Which doesn't mean that this is not a negative thing. It may very well be. We need to be concerned, but we should be cautious <coughs> about these things. And since my voice is going, that's a good time to say thank you. Time for a few questions. Let's see. In the way in the back there, the first a gentleman and then the woman behind her. Hello. Oh, hi, uh, Brian Ledgerwood, U.S. Department of Commerce. I um, wanted to know. This is pretty much a question for all of you. What you thought about how the discussion around net neutrality might impact your findings, and what you think that that might, uh, how it might impact your thoughts about the work that you've been doing. Who wants to? Go first, nobody. <laughs> Take it, Alex? <laughs> I mean, I have opinions on net neutrality. Um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not overwhelmingly in support of it. Um, I think there are arguments on both sides. I'm, I, I do worry about uh, the arguments against net neutrality are that we ought look, it's working pretty well. Let's not mess it up. Uh, so I think you could see a reduction in dynamism because of that, um, but it's not it's not number one on the list of dynamism issues on these on these grounds. I don't really have it. I haven't thought enough about it other than I, I have been struck, and again, it's the, it's the case I made. It's not exactly your question, but but both I talked about it and, and Alex talked about it in a sense. In retail trade, at least, ITs help the big guys, not so much the small guys, and so just it's, it's worth recognizing. That's why your questions were relevant. I haven't thought enough about it. But, but nevertheless, I mean, I think a lot of people somehow had this notion IT was going to, we, we were all going to go be, become independent contractors, right? And in and, and, and retail trade, that's just not what's going, what's going on. I have no clue. The woman right behind the gentleman who just asked the question. Is there any way we can look at industrial hacking as, a, as a, an engine for dynamism in business? since so many companies were so laissez-faire about protecting their systems? Hmm. So let me, let me, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> so one of the things, uh, some of my other research uh, has been on uh, patents and copyrights and, and IP, intellectual property more generally, and I do think we've overdone it. So uh, IP uh, uh, monopolizes, creates a monopoly, and 
that's one that's okay if you are uh, developing a new chair and you're going to take some money for consumers and then the least of the money is going to go to producers. But when you are dealing with products on top of which other products are built, when you're dealing with products which themselves are part of the innovation circle and you raise the cost on one of those products which is going to be used to produce another product, then uh, IP can actually reduce innovation. And I think that we're on the wrong side of the curve in this case, that we have too much IP, not just uh, for patents and copyrights, but also um, too much for labor. So we are uh, these uh, uh, clauses. Non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going crazy on non-compete non -compete clauses that, you know, dog catchers now have got non-compete <laughs> clauses. Uh, so we, and that also reduces uh, the ability of workers to move from one part of the economy to another part of the economy. It reduces the ability to move knowledge. That's the best way to move knowledge, to spread knowledge, is to spread a worker. Knowledge is in heads. It's not just on the internet. So the best way to transmit and diffuse knowledge is to allow workers to move across sectors of the economy. And non-compete clauses and IP, it's all preventing a lot of this uh, allocation and reallocation process. So I think we've gone overboard. The gentleman whose hand is raised right here in the middle. Okay. <clears throat> Just want to make a brief comment here on the young firms. The identification of the young firms was high volatility. Now, in the financial world, volatility is risk. That is, the definition of risk is volatility. And so we have introduced over the last two decades banking regulations that tell banks that if you go for risk, you need to have higher capital requirements than if you go for the safe. And this means that banks will earn much higher risk-adjusted returns on their equity, lending to the safe, to the established middle, than lending to the risky. And this is primarily in Europe, killing off all entrepreneurship, small businesses, and, and startups, but is also in the U.S. affecting those who don't have access to the venture capital. I just want some comment on that from Heidenberger primarily. So I, I, I'm, I'm quite sympathetic. That we, we, we should be worrying about what we're, what's going on in financial markets. I mean, one of the, one of the questions in the, in the post-Great Street recession period, ha, again, have we have the regulations made it so that exactly your story is going on, so that, so that indeed uh, the, the banking sector is not doing, is not taking on as much risk. I, I actually kind of had a question about, my, my understanding, and this is, was not your question, my understanding is that even in parts of the uh, financial sector, which is not so regular, my understanding is that the VC market is, is they've moved more towards later, later stage businesses. They don't seem to be taking on quite the same, same risk as before. And so... So, so I'm sympathetic with your notion. It's related to the to the comments we had. Young businesses are, are incredibly volatile, and uh, and, and it's a, it's a very hard problem for financial markets to be able to uh, to be able to try to allocate credit to that. You could say that the growth of VC is is exactly along those lines. To the extent that the the regulation system, but also for whatever reason, my understanding is the VC markets themselves have become more cautious in this post uh, Great Recession period. Last word? Yeah. So uh, let, let me half agree with you. Uh, good banks lending to small businesses ought not to be taking risks. 
and it 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 it, it is it is the job of the banker to to lend to business businesses which loans that will be repaid and and it is incredibly dangerous to the financial system to if banks did in fact take the kinds of, take equity kinds of risk that having been said the the entire direction of regulation in the united states and in europe has been in the direction away from perfectly prudent small business lending in the direction of replacing their uh, their asset portfolios with asset backed securities and tradable securities rather than actual loans to uh, to, to flesh and blood businesses. This process has been accelerated since 2008 by, on the one hand, increasing capital and liquidity requirements, uh, risk-weighted capital and liquidity requirements, which basically say, get rid of all, of all the small business loans that you have on your books, sell them to uh, hedge funds who will do very nicely with it, at least in the short run, and replace, uh, and, 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 and replace them with asset-backed securities or, 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 or corporate bonds. This is an absolutely terrible thing, not because this is, in, this, this, this is in any way sort of making banks genuinely less risky, but it is reducing the, the availability of really non-risk credit or not very high-risk credit to, to, to the sector that simply cannot do without it. Just real quickly, that's idiosyncratic risk is what's critical about the yes. group we're talking about. And the problem we ran into in the financial crisis was not idiosyncratic risk. So. We've run out of time. Sorry. We're going to take a break, and we'll regroup uh, in 11 minutes. Thank our panelists. Thank